Welcome to Cold Case MHS, where real education beats real life. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Case MHS, with my co-host, Ashley, and we thank you for listening. It was Memorial Day weekend in the city of Elyria, Northern Ohio. On the morning of May 26, 2001, a shocking discovery was made. 32-year-old Wendy Berkey was found shot and killed in the gated parking lot of her workplace. Wendy Ruth Berkey was born in Elyria, Ohio and lived there all her life. She graduated from Elyria West High School in 1988 and continued her education at Lorraine Community College where she studied for an additional two years. At the time of the crime, Wendy was married to a man whom she had two daughters with named Sabrina and Sierra. Wendy also had an ex-husband at the time whom she had one daughter with named Savannah. For the sake of privacy reasons, I'm not going to name the two husbands. Instead, I'll just call them husband one and husband two, husband one being her ex-husband and then husband two being the man she was married to at the time. Wendy was the crew chief of a cleaning company called Elyria Maintenance Company. She was sitting in the parking lot inside of her car when she was shot twice with a 45 caliber gun. The first shot didn't kill her, but the second shot did. So the person meant to kill her. Wendy's mom, Barbara Bohoric, said in a court TV interview, quote, somebody meant to kill her. So she mentioned the two shots that were taken at Wendy outside of her car. We actually received a picture of the van sitting in the parking lot and it appeared as if there were two bullet holes that went through the passenger side window. What we found out from the sheriff though is that those were just reflections that were coming from the sun or the lights that were on the van at the time. She was actually shot standing outside of her car on the driver's side of the Yeah, so she was, she was actively trying to get into her car at the time. We were thinking that shot her once and then shot her again, which was the fatal shot. So we were wondering, since the killer did take two shots, is it because they were inexperienced with a gun, or was it because they wanted to inflict maximum pain or maximum fear in Wendy before she died? There are many odd coincidences in this case. For one, Wendy always worked with a partner, but on the day she was murdered, he was moved to a different crew, leaving her all by herself. So, would that person normally have been in the car with her? Yeah, well, she used to work with him, so they would work in pairs, but on this day, it was just a rare occurrence that he was moved, so that plays into a theory that maybe somebody from work did that on purpose to, Mm -hmm. like, isolate her. It was also said that she was having disagreements with other coworkers, but it's unclear that any disagreements led to her partner being assigned to a different crew that day. In the interview, it said that she was having disagreements with her coworkers. Was that at all maybe motive for someone? Uh, there was some disagreements, but those in the investigation back in 2001 and in my investigation, 
I could not find anything significant that those agreements, those disagreements had anything to do with, with her homicide. So it was just a random coincidence that that night her partner from work didn't go with her? Well, I, <laughs> so yeah, I could see how that did a lot of, uh, you know, obviously that, that was explored through the investigation. Okay. It is, it, it is a coincidence, which is, I mean, yeah, I will say, yes, it turns out it's a, it's a strange turn of events and a coincidence that that was the one night she wasn't partnered up with someone. Right. But the person that did that did not have a motive nor what we believed a connection to the theorized suspects. I do not think in the previous investigation or in my investigation that it was anybody work-related. Um, I know that was kind of brought up in the, in the past that maybe somebody with work, but there was, there was nothing that would rise to homicide to that level. Something else that was strange was that Wendy was in the middle of divorcing from her second husband, and the day after she was killed was the day that his very first child support check was due. Wendy's life was very strenuous at the time of the crime. She was having disagreements at work, and like I said, was in the middle of a stressful divorce. So at this point, the kids are fully in her custody, so I would assume that the divorce has like been completed. Yes, or something like that. Um, all I read was that she was in the middle of having a divorce from him, um, but I assume it was probably almost over since the child support check was due. So they're at least separated, but like yes, legally. Yes, they were separated, yeah. yes. So I spoke with Wendy's oldest daughter, Savannah, who's the daughter of the first husband, and she told me that both her father and the second husband were both looked into by the police. So there's a little confusion between what husband is doing what, what's happening with who. So later in an interview Grace does with the detective, we can conclude that the first husband is the one responsible for paying the child support, and that is where the check is coming from. And the second husband is the one that is currently divorcing Wendy, and it's like it's a divorce in progress. It's not completed. As a matter of fact, this divorce was never finalized because Wendy was killed before she could finalize the divorce. DNA testing is in the works right now, but to this day, no one has been convicted for the heinous crime that took Wendy's life. So they're supposedly doing some DNA testing on some evidence from the scene. I would say that DNA is probably not going to be such a big deal in this case because her assailant shot her, which means she's standing pretty far away from whoever was trying to kill her, which means they probably didn't transfer any DNA. Even if it was her husband's, DNA, either one of them, that could be considered circumstantial evidence. Are there any people of interest that would be looked into besides the ex-husbands and just the people who are working? Um, well, Savannah told me that there were other people, but I didn't get any names. And from my research, I couldn't find anyone who they're looking into right now by mm -hmm. name. Yeah. So I also spoke with our school's resource police officers and they were stumped by this case as well. They said that the fact that Wendy was parked inside a locked gate could point to another coworker being responsible, 
but the coincidence of the very first child support check being due the next day could also be motive. This case is tricky because when you look at one detail, it seems almost open and shut. But when you look at another detail, it opens up a completely different possibility as to what could have happened. And there's so much, like there's so little to go off of. All mm-hmm. you have is just the bullet and the shot. And then other than that, there's nothing else. Yeah. It was really quick. Yeah. And it's almost like they couldn't have been connected. Like the two theories couldn't have been connected because... It was a locked gate, so how would the ex-husband been able to get inside the locked gate of her workplace where he didn't even work either? Right. You heard her previously say that the gate was locked, meaning that it would have deterred anyone that tried to get in. But in the next clip, you'll hear Grace talking to the detective, and he confirms that the gate was insecure, meaning that if anyone really did want to get in, they could have. The parking lot that she was in, it was a gated parking lot, right? Yeah, well, at that time, it was gated but not secured access. Anybody could have accessed it. So currently, there is someone who is still actively working on Wendy's case. Detective Dustin Thacker of Valera Police Department is reviewing all evidence and the notes of the detectives who originally investigated the case. I reached out to him and he told me that because the case is cold but still open, there isn't much information he could give me. The fact that he states that it's still an open and active case, what does that mean since you're now in cold case class? We just talked about this the other day. (laughs) So basically an open case means that in theory it's not actively being investigated, but it's not a closed case. I mean, there's still things that are un- there's uncertain of. They're still trying to put two and two together. But it being an open and active case means that someone is still actively trying to collect data, uh, uh, more information, just to try to figure more things out. But talking about why the detective wouldn't share the additional information when they asked, it's because that they run the risk of compromising the investigation if they share too much, if they share things that they think that only the killer would know or information that they don't want other people knowing. The detective tells Grace he can't say much about the case because it's still open, but Grace did some serious research and stumbled upon something he didn't think she would know. Listen to their interaction in this next clip and notice the surprise in his voice. At this point, he realizes that if a high school student can find that information, then there's no reason to avoid talking about it. So he sees this as a teaching moment. Now, just a reminder, we are not accusing anyone of this crime. We are just stating our inferences based on what we know. Don't know if this might be coincidence, but um, it was said that she was supposed to receive the first child support check the day after she was murdered. Is that just a coincidence as well? That's interesting that you even know that. How'd you find that out? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, no, no, I, 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 that's actually interesting that you even know that. I didn't know that that was, wouldn't you think that's a pretty big motive? Yeah. That is very true. Okay. That is very true. Child support, she was killed on a holiday weekend, right? Yes. Yeah. Monday. The day after that brand new child support check. Now remember, she's not divorced. So there wouldn't be child support, right? Not you're not divorced yet. There will be eventually. Although that didn't happen because she died. Yes. 
But how old was Savannah when she when when Wendy was killed? Do you know? I believe she was three or four. Okay. So three or four, and then all of a sudden, there's supposed to be a child support check. If you're three or four years old, shouldn't your dad have paid child support three or four years ago? But her father didn't always know that she existed, that it was, she was hers, that she was his. Could that maybe have been motive for Patrick? Could be. You never know. <laughs> now, that coincidence, that's not... I, that's not the same coincidence as the, uh, you know, she was scheduled to work on her own. Mm -hmm. I've been keeping in contact with him, but as of now, there aren't any new updates. If anyone listening knows anything about Wendy's murder, even if it's a small detail that you think won't help, please call Detective Dustin Thacker at 440-326-1212 or email him at dthacker at cityofillyria.org. Even the smallest details can help push an investigation further. Wendy was a member of the St. Vincent de Paul Church. She was a Girl Scouts leader for the local Daisy Troop and was serving as the president of her neighborhood council. She was getting ready to enroll her oldest daughter, Savannah, in kindergarten. Wendy was a loving daughter, sister, wife, friend, and most importantly to her, a mother of three beautiful daughters. Today, I want us all to remember Wendy for who she was and hope and pray that the person who took her life, took her away from her family and the people who loved her will finally be brought to justice. That was our final episode of season two. We thank all of our listeners for your support during this season. I do want to summarize three more cases that we researched during this season. But due to lack of information, or in one case, the students who worked on it were both sick the day we were supposed to tape it, and we were not able to get that episode out. Amy Hooper was a beautiful 21-year-old girl trying to work her way into the fashion and design field. On March 9th of 1992, Amy went to her parents' house early in the morning to give back her mother's car and use her sister's car to get back to her apartment. Around noon, Amy's sister and her father went over to retrieve the car and knocked on the door, but Amy did not answer. Amy's sister saw her car in the parking lot, so she used the extra keys to get in because she was already late for work. Then they both left. But that's when things got scary. Amy, who always showed up for work on time, all of a sudden didn't show up, and nobody knew what that meant. Her father, now really concerned, went to the apartment to ask an apartment employee to let him in. What they would find would horrify them. Amy's lifeless, naked body was found beaten and stabbed to death in an upstairs room. The Columbus police believed that Amy knew her killer. There was no forced entry into the apartment, and they felt she had been posed by the killer in the position that she was found in. Not only that, the stab wounds were post-mortem. Who does that? Someone that had a real personal issue against her, most likely. The one piece of evidence that the police feel can turn the case around is a necklace that was found in her hand. It was a medallion painted in the colors of the African flag that she bought at a reggae festival. What is the significance of this? Someone out there knows. Unfortunately, Amy's killer is still at large 31 years later. If anyone out there knows anything about Amy Hooper's killer, her family would really like to get some closure for this case. 
If you know anything, please contact the Columbus Police Department as soon as you possibly can. The 1970s would unfortunately be deemed as the golden era for serial killers. Names that I hate to even bring up, but for context I really have to, include monsters like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, the Zodiac Killer, BTK, and many more demons of that time period. The scary thing is these sickos could have been sitting right next to you and you would not even know it. Now unless you lived in the areas of these awful individuals, you just got disgusted by the stories that you saw in the news, but it always seemed like it was really far away. Here in Cincinnati, we assumed it was only happening in other places. Boy, were we wrong. Our class looked into the case of 19-year-old Cyril Thompson, a sophomore at the University of Cincinnati. On April 8th of 1978, a Department of Natural Resources game board was doing a routine check along the Little Miami River near Loveland, Ohio. He spotted a naked body of a female lying on the riverbank. That body would be that of Cheryl's, reported missing about a week before. Cheryl would be laid to rest, but her case would go unsolved for nearly 44 years. The students dug up as much as they could about her case, but unfortunately there just wasn't a whole lot out there. They contacted Detective Steve Moster of the Loveland Police Department, who was working on the case at the time, and he responded by email, stating, quote, I am having a meeting with BCI, the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigations. We are going to discuss Cheryl Thompson's case. Even though the murder of Cheryl Thompson is considered to be a cold case, we have never stopped investigating the case." Unquote. That statement would hit home on November 17, 2022. The Hamilton County Prosecutor, Joe Dieters, would have a news conference stating they have found Cheryl's killer. Through great breakthroughs in DNA, they were able to find a match. Cincinnati was not immune to the violence during the 1970s, but the term serial killer was only used a few times. A convicted serial murderer, Larry Ralston, was looked at as a suspect in Cheryl's disappearance and murder, but he was ruled out. 44 years after her murder, Cheryl and those that remained still alive in her family got just a bit of justice when the DNA match came back to a person who was suspected of being a serial killer by the name of Ralph Howe. In kind of poetic justice moment, Ralph was killed in a car crash in the mid-1980s. He was indicted posthumously by Prosecutor Dieters for Cheryl's murder. This discovery then led to the reopening of three other cases in which Ralph was considered to be a main suspect. The murders of 18-year-old Nancy Theobald, 17-year-old Charmaine Stola, and 24-year-old Victoria Hincher, all of which were cases that they thought Ralph may have been involved with. All of these girls were taken from the area near the campus of the University of Cincinnati and then their bodies were found in similar conditions with signs of sexual assault and strangulation. Those cases are still being tested to see if Ralph is the killer, but for now, at least there are a few more answers. The story of Fame Cooper unfortunately didn't get its own episode because the students that were involved both got sick right before taping of it and unfortunately were not able to return back to school before they moved on. They also had gotten some really important information very late in the year and didn't have enough time to actually edit the podcast and put that in there. So I'm going to tell you what I know about Fame and her story. Fame was a 14-year-old young woman that disappeared on July 11, 1990. People close to her thought that maybe she just ran away again because she did that often. Like most teenagers, she would eventually show up in a few days or a few hours. 
but unfortunately this time she would not make it home. On November 10, 1990, turkey hunters walking their way out of the woods happened to stumble upon the remains of Fane Cooper. There was a wire wrapped around the neck of the remains, and the mystery began, and the search for a killer still goes on today. Fane was a wonderful, caring person who, like many kids of her age, are easily persuaded to try new things, especially if they're hanging around with older people. Fame's childhood was not easy either. Her home life was difficult and she often acted out because of that. It wasn't unusual for her to be out all night or walking the streets of Fairmont, West Virginia alone. So when she didn't come home at first, most did not think the worst had happened to her. Immediately names began to flow from the mouths of the locals of Fairmont, West Virginia about the people they felt possibly could have had something to do with this. One of the obvious names was that of Norbert McGinty. Norman was not a good dude, and how he eluded jail time for his many offenses really has me baffled, and to tell you the truth, a bit mad. If this guy is put away like he should have been, then maybe Fane Cooper and some of his other victims would have reached their full potential, and who knows, maybe Fane would have been famous for something for the right reasons, like helping people, something she always said she wanted to do. Unfortunately, Fairmont, West Virginia wasn't immune to controversy, as several police officers and a prosecutor all were indicted for obstruction of justice in another case. This makes things a little more difficult to find out information. Rumors flew around town about Norbert and his relationship with someone high up in the public office of Fairmont. Now, this has not been confirmed, so we won't speculate much on that. Norbert did leave town shortly after Fame's disappearance, and also the fact that there was another young girl's body recovered in the woods. Was Norbert a serial killer? We don't know for sure. He fled to Texas where he was implicated in another case, one where he supposedly had shot his girlfriend and her daughter. But again, somehow he eluded jail time. As of recent news passed on to me by a retired detective from Fairmont, Norbert was found dead on his own property in Texas in 2022. If he killed Fame and those others, he has taken it to his grave. Maybe now new tests can be run to see if he is the one that took Fane's life. Recently, my class and I were contacted by someone who states she was Fane's best friend and says she has some information about Fane's boyfriend and possible people who may have been involved. I plan to take a harder look at Fane's case and spend a lot more time on it in the near future. But for now, rest in peace, Fame. Hopefully one day, earthly and heavenly justice will be served. The goal of our class is to use what we have learned to gather as much information about these cases, to speak for those who cannot. We hope that the right person will listen to our podcast and relay anything they know about these cases to the police departments that are working on them. In honor of the victims and their families, we thank you for listening to Season 2 of Cold Case MHS, Monsters and Demons. Please remember these names, and we hope you return to listen to Season 3, coming soon. Alicia Jackson Buffy Joe Freeman Cheryl Thompson Lisa Buckley Daniel Trotman Liz Falco Wendy Berkey Fane Cooper Bobby Lee Wells Regina Hicks Chelsea Johnson, Amy Hooper, and Priscilla Dawn Higman.
I want to thank all those who have helped us over the years as we have progressed in our class. Thank you to all the police officers, lawyers, doctors, family members, administration, and anyone who has given time to help us with our cases. We sincerely thank you and look forward to working with you in the future. The theme song at the beginning of this podcast, Cold Case, was written and performed by a former MHS student, Jenna Brandt, and produced by Noria. The artwork for this podcast was created by former MHS student, Emma Holbert. The background music and final theme song, and the theme song for season three, Believe Me, is written, performed, and produced by current MHS student, Alexa Dahl. you hey.